One of the things that's really important for me as I have processed through and realized what's going on um, under the surface of all my stuff is that I didn't actually have a, a sex addiction. I had what people call a love addiction. So for me, um, a lot of my acting out was done in relationships. And so for me, that was a place I could perform and always be loved. Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men quit pornography. So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today on the show, we have Trevor Windsor from Pure Desire Ministries. Welcome, Trevor. Hey, man. I am pumped to be here. It feels a little weird. Most of the time when I'm on a podcast, I've got a co-host, and so just be a solo guest feels... Uh, freeing, maybe. I like that. It's good. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> well, Trevor, you are the director of marketing and communication at Pure Desire, and you're also a novelist. I just recently found that out. I didn't even know that. That is true. So uh, everyone processes trauma differently. I tend to process trauma through writing. Um, and I mean, you say that and it, you know, people assume that I'm like somehow published or something. No, I just have a really rough first draft of a novel. It's a lot of pages, but, uh, there is aspiration there for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that if you want to get free from pornography, processing trauma is the most important thing you can Mm -hmm. possibly do. Um, but for a lot of us, it takes a long time to realize that we even have trauma, that that's even a thing that we need to go through. Trevor, how did your journey to freedom from porn begin? Yeah, man. Well, I feel like every um, everyone who processes through this stuff realizes that it starts a lot earlier than you expect. Um, for me, growing up in a Christian home, man, like here's a really good snapshot. Uh, I, From what I understand, you and I are both sevens on the Enneagram, so we're storytellers. Yes! We're storytellers. So this is this is a quick story. I um, my dad's dad uh, was an alcoholic, abusive uh, when my dad was growing up, and there was a point when I was a young kid that that grandfather of mine said to my dad, "You're being too hard on Trevor." Uh, and so for me, I grew up in a home that um, valued scripture, valued doing what's right, valued being respectful. Um, and in a lot of ways that's helped me in my life, but at the same time, it was a lot of rules and not a lot of relationship. You know, I think of, um, the, this is kind of the culture, another quick story. Like I remember the first time I heard the F word, um, I was out just playing uh, ball in the street with some friends and, and I came in, uh, inside later that night and I, for some reason was laying on the couch. I mean, this is, you know, traumatic stuff. You remember, I, sat down on the couch. um, And I think I was about to lay down to go to bed and my parents are there. They're like tucking me in, talking to me. And I'm like, you know what? I heard this word. What does this word mean? And as soon as the word came out of my mouth, my mom's like, oh, honey, we do not use that word in this house. And so for me uh, at the moment, it was like, okay, I did something wrong. So what I learned, because they told me what that word meant, slang term used to describe sex. um, And So for me at that point, I learned, you know what? Sex equals bad. Sex is shameful. And so um, as I went through life being an athlete, um, I played sports all the way through college. And one of the things that I learned was that you're loved to the degree that you perform on the field. And so for me, when I didn't perform well, I didn't receive love. And so I was dealing with a lot of identity stuff, um, dealing with a lot of issues that I didn't know how to resolve, um, why I was upset, why I was irritated, why things hurt so bad. 
So I remember the first time I was exposed to pornography around the age of, it was either 10 or 11. Um, still remember where I was, whose house I was at. Um, and that started really a 15-year cycle of, of an addiction um, that grew and grew. But one of the things that's really important for me as I have processed through and realized what's going on um, under the surface of all my stuff is that I didn't actually have a, a sex addiction. I had what people call a love addiction. So for me, um, a lot of my acting out was done in relationships. And so for me, that was a place I could perform and always be loved and always be received, um, almost to the point where what I could do uh, sexually was uh, something that I took value in, right? I was like, I'm good at this. Like I do these things and it makes people feel good and they like it. So for me, identity started to get wrapped up into that as well. And um, and so for me, I got to the point where I was a youth pastor, still struggling off and on with pornography. Uh, still, I mean, whether you want to call it still a raging addiction or not, it was still a binge purge consistently. So I had two parents come to me and their kids were sexting each other and they're like, hey, what do I do? Um, and I'm like, I have no idea. Hold on a second. Let me go think, you know, think through this a little bit. Praise the Lord. I had family who was working at Pure Desire at the time. And they were like, hey, come to this event. Come hear about this stuff, which oddly enough, I'd been to an event before with Ted and Diane, Dr. Ted and Diane, our founders. And uh, when I heard them speak, I was like, mm, yeah, this isn't for me. Like, no, thank you. I'm not an addict. How dare you? But it was that desire to help other people that led me to this event. Um, I saw how people reacted, responded, spoke to each other, knew the brokenness in life, but still loved each other and still wanted to spend time with each other. I'm like, you know what? I really feel like I need this. So I brought it back to my church. My elders were on board, jumped in and really dove into the process of understanding what's motivating the addiction and the behavior. And, um, and then now, you know, I'm in year five of recovery. Uh, and, uh, it's amazing, dude. Like I now work for pure desire full time where I'm helping other people find sexual health and freedom and restore marriages, set new trajectories for families, uh, create healthy cultures and communities. So, uh, that's just, I mean, it's tough. That's, that's 32 years right there in a snapshot. So. <laughs> Man, you got through a lot in a short amount of time. Um, you mentioned something that, I think a lot of people would benefit from learning more about, which is that binge purge cycle. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Yeah. So um, binge purge, like especially if you're a believer in Christ, you get this thing where you do something that's wrong. So specifically with pornography, um, you have maybe a string of acting out um, maybe three, four times in a week. And then you're like, oh, I feel so bad. You start to feel guilt, which then gives birth to shame in so many ways for us, or we allow it to give birth to shame. And then you're like, I'm never going to do this again. All right, God, I'm going to get right with you. I'm going to get right with other people. I'm going to throw my computer away. You know, this isn't going to happen again. And that's the purge. You just basically purge everything. Um, but then a couple weeks, maybe a couple months later, something happens that sets you off. It triggers you. Um, and you are just like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to go right back into it. Because one of my friends has referred it to like pornography was his best friend. It was always there for him when he wanted it. And so for me, I just went back to the most consistent friendship I had in my life, which was pornography. And then I'd, I'd wow. binge, I'd go on a heart. I mean, just think about um, people who are, are uh, drug addicts or alcoholics. It's the same thing. You go on this binge, huge binge cycle. Uh, and then you get caught or something bad happens and you purge it. And so it's that back and forth. And what I learned yeah. through that is that even, even if you 
let's see, like, uh, let's say you take a year, even if you act out just one time every single year, that's still a cycle that every year you're acting out one time. And so that is still a clinical definition of an addiction, a behavior you want to stop, but can't. And there's a pattern. So for me, the binge purge was, was that like, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. I get back into it and the cycle just continues. And that just blows my mind. I mean, it blew my mind when I relapsed after an entire year of freedom from the behavior. And what you're saying is sometimes we can feel like we're free or we're keeping track of that streak when in reality, we're still just as trapped because we're still in the cycle. Totally. Yeah. So, so that, I think that's kind of a wake up call for Mm -hmm. a lot of guys who are like, yeah, I've been free for two weeks now. I've been free for two months now. Well, have you really? Yeah. Um, especially if we haven't done that work of processing trauma. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, honestly, I think once you start to identify what are the things that trigger you or get you to that place where it's touching a wound or trauma that you've had in your past, because I think wound is a better word. I think people can swallow that a little bit better than trauma. Yeah. It's um, easier to say I'm wounded than yeah. I have trauma. Yeah. Or hurt from something you know previously in your life. Once you start to identify those things that hit those wounds or those hurts, And then you're able to, like that happens, and then you're able to not act out and pursue health in that moment. That is where you start to see traction. That's where you can basically place that mile marker. Okay, health is happening because I'm responding now in a positive way where before I used to run to go numb it out. Yeah, and I'm also struck by how your particular version of this cycle was more about love yeah. in sex yep. or in relationships. Yep. Um, so you got this message that sex is bad, sex is gross, sex is dirty. And yet you found that through your own appeal and through your ability to influence women, mm-hmm. you could get something good out of it. Right. So yeah. what, yeah, what was that about? So, I mean, going back to kind of what I said earlier of what really sports taught me, which, I mean, I'm so grateful for it. In reality, baseball was the sport of choice for me. And um, you learn that the best players in the world succeed three out of 10 times. So baseball teaches you failure, uh, which I'm super thankful for today. Um, Doesn't necessarily make it easy, but it teaches you how to manage it and how to keep perspective. Um, But for me, uh, that was always a place that, you know, like like in, in high school, I wouldn't even call myself a player. I was usually in committed relationships. Um, but I would get to the point where if I was starting a relationship, I would tell somebody all of my junk and all of my mess up front. And it's like, okay, if you're going to reject me, do it now so that I don't have to put all this work in and then get rejected later. And so for me, it was all about love and acceptance. Am I valuable enough? Are you going to love me and care for me enough? And this is, you know, dipping into like Enneagram stuff as I'm learning about being a seven, man, one of the things that really, um, one of the things that I consistently need to do is I need to make sure I'm being taken care of. Like that's a a core motivation for me. And so that played out in relationship. Um, and so as obviously, you know, pornography being a companion to all of that, it was something where in the moment I'm not only feeling good, but this person is expressing love to me physically, you know, love languages, definitely that's up there for me. And so it was, it's just a really palpable, evidence that someone cares for me and wants to be with me and wants me. Um, which, you know, I can, I can tell you now, even in recovery, 
being married and now having kids, like kids change things. You know what I mean? Not only uh, like body, as far as, you know, moms are concerned and desire and energy for both parents. Like, so even now being married, it's still, there still are moments where it's like, well, if we're not having sex or, or aren't being intimate physically, am I, am I really like what she wants? Am I really what my wife desires? And, and so for me, that's still faulty thinking that pornography and the brokenness of my past and the lies that I believe the enemy uh, was consistently feeding me, that's evidence that those things still need to get worked on. So I'm still in recovery and in process for sure. Yeah. And that hits me because we share that, um, that need and the priority of being taken care of. And I love how you said it earlier that porn has been our friend. Yep. It took care of us. Right in important ways that other people didn't. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you seek to get that need met in a healthy way? Yeah. I mean, it helps to understand the negative benefits <laughs> that pornography has both on your brain. Um, and I, I really do believe there's a soul level of, of torment that you do uh, to your soul through pornography. Um, and again, this is not, that's not a judgmental statement. That's just something I've experienced. Um, but for me, I realized that I can actually take the stuff in my life that's really difficult and bring it to other people and still be loved and accepted. Yeah. Um, a huge, huge thing. And I've, I've said this a lot now at our events that we do. I've said it on the podcast. Um, one of the things I remember my first uh, Pure Desire group that I was in, we were doing our disclosures to our group members. And there was one area of my life, of my story, my negative sexual history that I was never going to tell anybody. I was taking it to my grave uh, and no one was ever going to know. And it was that I had a same sex experience when I was, I think I was 11. Um, I can't even remember how old I was, but uh, that was something that I felt like was so shameful because I'd never struggled with same sex attraction or felt like I was, I was gay or had any desires to, to move in that direction with my sexuality. And so for me, I felt like something must be so broken that I did this. And I remember I was holding the paper and I'm, I'm just shaking as I'm about to get to this part of my disclosure. And, and I power through it. I tell the guys. And at the end, I had two other guys in the group who looked at me and were like, me too. And I, for the first time, felt like God reached out and touched that wound, that part of my past and healed it. Doesn't mean that there still wasn't shame or guilt that I carried from it, but I understood that I could be accepted by other people uh, and be loved. And so for me, that's what I've learned as far as um, really looking at how to heal and how to pursue positive things. What I'm really looking for is like, do people still love me? And what I've learned is that if you're willing to be honest and be vulnerable, people will love you and will accept you. Um, but also, well, here's another thing I'd add, and this is just coming from the pure desire perspective. If you are somebody who's not doing anything to change your behavior and you're sharing all these negative behaviors, people tend to respond differently than if you're actively trying to pursue health and in the midst sharing the struggle and the toil and the work, people are like, man, you're doing a great job. Remember, keep this perspective, keep pushing, let's keep doing this. So I think for me, that's how I've seen um, that the Lord can use community to affirm that it's okay to not be okay. And that it's also important to continue moving forward in our recovery. Amen. Man, that was fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I resonate with that experience for me having attractions that I didn't like and that I didn't want. And I think 
for me, it's easy to think, oh yeah, I know how to receive care. I know how to care for myself. Yeah. But then there are those parts of me that I still feel like they deserve shame. They deserve condemnation. Other people can't see those. And those are the parts that actually need care. Yep. So it's not just, you know, me in general who who needs a shoulder to cry on. It's those specific younger places yep. in my heart. Yeah. Or those wounded places. And um, I find the exact same thing. When I open up about those, it helps other people do the same thing. Yep. Yep. It's beautiful. And then we create a culture of grace and acceptance. And I know you're super passionate about talking about creating a culture where our sexuality can move towards health. I mean, um, how did you get to be passionate about that? Why do you, why do you care about that so much? Well, I dude, first and foremost, because I lived in a culture of shame for so long and it's exhausting. Uh, and it just is, it's a terrible, terrible place to be. And this is something I think, um, you know, I've heard said around staff a lot here at Pure Desire is that basically like Satan's biggest tactic in this area is to give everybody the same problem and then convince everyone they're the only one who struggles with it. (laughs) And it's like, and it's just one of those things where, especially so around this topic, culture of grace around this topic is so important because if you knew that there were 70% of people in your church like, let's just do this. We'll, we'll take the stats that we know about pornography in the church now through Barna, Covenant Eyes, Josh McDowell, and we apply it to, let's say, cocaine use. So if you've got 70%, 70% of men in your church and 30 to 35% of women in your church struggling with cocaine actively, trying to stop the behavior, but continuing to struggle, are you just going to sit on your hands and be like, well, they just need to pray more. Like they just need to read their Bible. They just need to be in community group more often. Maybe they should come to church, you know, four times a month instead of two. Like we're basically trying to put, as uh, a friend of ours, Mo Isom says, like you're putting band-aids on bullet holes at that point, Um, just trying to basically cap things and it doesn't really make sense. And so, um, yeah, man, the culture of grace is so important because it's something I lived in the opposite for so long. And now that I have a taste of it, Man, it's one of the most freeing things. Um, you know, I can I can tell you right now. I was in a conversation yesterday. Uh, I had a friend who uh, was had had this conversation that I was listening to. I was just a part of, and uh, he got super triggered. Came back into the office and was like, "Hey, I just uh, I'm like feeling this." And I said, "Why don't you just go talk to that person? Why don't you just be honest about what's going on and share how you experienced that interaction?" And he did. And it, it, the conversation he had, I was sitting in the room for it, was not a really great start, but they got to a point where they both were heard and they both were okay that they were both upset after that initial conversation. And they hashed it out and their relationship is better now. And I feel like that is evidence of a culture of grace that, look, I, I love you. I want to talk about this. This is important to talk about. Can you talk about it? The other person, yes. If you go first, I'll follow. Let's do this. They have a conversation and they walk away better than when they enter the room. And so for me, I feel like it's the same thing with sexuality, with brokenness. If we're willing to walk into the room and start having some conversations and be willing that maybe it's going to be awkward and weird for a little bit, but at the end, we're going to be better for it. I don't see how that's not a win for everybody involved if so many people are struggling in this area. Yeah. Um, and when I think about my church, you know, we're starting to um, create some of those spaces. 
it creates a lot of questions. Um, questions about staff who might be involved. Questions about uh, secrets that could emerge. And as pure desire, how do you guys guide a church or a group of people who who are wondering? Well, if we if we start bringing this up, we could face some big consequences. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, do you want to live in secrets for the rest of your life? Um, And the only way at that point that you're going to get healthy is if someone catches you, it gets revealed. That is an opportunity for you to for sure lose your job. (laughs) Someone finds out. That's true. (laughs) But um, the reality of being honest is it's usually really difficult. If there's something difficult to share, honesty is never something that's like, you know what, this is going to taste real good going down. Like it doesn't. Um, but the Ben, and this is what I've seen in what I understand from the Lord, um, obedience versus sin. Uh, if we want to use that word, basically obedience to not, you know, following the ways of Jesus, not following the ways of Jesus, you get that gratification right away. And then later comes guilt. Um, where if you're being obedient, what I've learned is that you don't actually get that gratification up front. It actually might be bitter at the beginning, but over time, the Lord is going to bless that and you are going to get that gratification. And so I think that the same thing is true in a, in a church. Um, you know, for me, I was a pastor and I was just willing to say, look, this is something I want to address and I want to invite people in. And I think that if it's something that you can wrap also in, this should be something that's a part of our church to help people in this area. I think that that makes it much more palatable for leaders or leadership in the church. Um, so that's if you're a pastor. I mean, just be honest and um, and understand that you're not alone in this. I think the stats like 57% of pastors either currently or have struggled in the recent past. And so I think that that's what I would do for a pastor. If you're someone who's not a pastor, um, man, just press into your healing. Like if your church isn't open to this, like go to a group at another church. You don't have to leave your church, but like if you got a group on Tuesday night at a church that's 30 minutes away, go. Like Pure Desire, we offer online groups. I know there are a lot of other organizations that use them too. Like join an online group somewhere and start recovery, start your healing. And what's cool, and this this is my experience, is that I, as I started to get healthy, my friends noticed and were like, how is this like, talk to me, what's happening here? Like you're getting healthy. You're not who you used to be. You're no longer looking at porn. Like this is awesome. Like, can you tell me about it? And so it's going to create organic conversations where you're able to say, look, this is what I'm doing and I'm finding great fruit. And what's cool is your story and your experience is one of the best ways to invite other people in. And I think that you'll see as you grow and also share your story with those around you, that it's going to invite other people in and look, Here's the thing. If your pastors or your leaders don't buy in, just do groups for a couple of years. Uh, even if you have to meet at your house uh, or like Drew, you meet in your garage, right? Like whatever you got to do. Um, sorry, spoiler alert. If you don't know where husband material <laughs> yeah, the, headquarters are. The garage. Yeah, that's right. But I think that you get to a point where if you've got 10 or 15 people who've gone through recovery, whose marriages are different, they're different parents, they live their life differently, you can't argue the fruit of going through recovery and getting healthy. And if you bring those stories to your pastors, not in a, hey, we need to do this manipulative type of way, but look at the fruit that we're seeing, it's going to be really hard for them to ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to join a group, Check out the links in the show notes to join a Pure Desire online group. Also, we're getting started with unwanted online groups, mm-hmm. which 
you can join and I'm going to be a leader for that. So opportunities abound, even in this coronavirus (laughs) world we're in right now. Yes. I mean, online groups are still available. They still, dude, we just uh, did a podcast um, very recently that we're talking about that. And it's just so important to understand that your rhythm and your routine and just your day to day is going to be so different and potentially like in a major way impacted by stuff going on with COVID-19 and all of it. So I think it's really important that we emphasize staying connected, not being isolated. And if you're starting recovery or in the midst of recovery, bro, don't stop. (laughs) Like, Brokenness doesn't take a vacation. You know what I mean? Like brokenness (laughs) doesn't clock out and it's like, okay, I'll see you tomorrow at eight. It's like, no, man, it's always there. And so I think it's really important that we take advantage of the resources that are out there. And look, I love Jay Stringer and I love Drew Boa. Like do these groups, do whatever you got to do to get in community and jump in. Like why wait? Yeah, maybe now's the best time if you're home from work and that's right. You're looking for something to do. Um, maybe there's never been a better time to go through your healing. And I love how you said it's so hard at the beginning and mm-hmm. it's bitter yep. and it sucks. And it's not going to be fun Mm-mm. for the first part. <laughs> no. You know? Yeah, it, it's, it, it gets harder. The yeah. payoff is. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, it gets, it gets harder. harder. Yeah. And then. Right. Eventually, it does get easier until it becomes almost second nature, automatic to um, instead of cope with my pain or try to soothe through pornography, mm-hmm. my former lover, my ex-partner, right. I'm, I'm going to choose real care and real intimacy. And it's so much better than the cheap imitation. Uh, totally. And I think one of the things that comes to mind, I know we've got a mutual friend, uh, Ben Bennett, who was on your podcast recently, and uh, he's a single dude. I mean, like, listen, if you're a single woman, <laughs> Ben's going to love that I'm saying this. If you're a single woman, Ben Bennett is one of the most amazing men I've met. <laughs> he is a stud, super healthy. I literally will put his phone number right now on the show. But he's a single guy and is still able to pursue intimacy. Intimacy is not yes. sex. It's different. Right. Like. Intimacy is not sex. Sex can be a part of intimacy, but intimacy Mm -hmm. that you're talking about, Drew, is being known fully and fully knowing other people. And and we can have that with family members. We can have that with friends. We can have that with the body of Christ, Mm -hmm. our family by blood, the blood of Jesus. And man, that's, I think that is the, the place, honestly, where we are primarily called to seek intimacy. Yeah. We're not all required to be married, but we are all called to depend on one another in the body of Christ. Right. And we get to do. Which like, don't get me wrong. Marriage is awesome. (laughs) Go for it. You know what I mean? But don't feel like that your sexuality is somehow like turned off while you're in the midst of waiting or in the midst of dating or engagement, or maybe you're just, you're single. Sexuality doesn't get, doesn't get turned off in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And for you and me, being married, having kids, we go through seasons where we are not doing the things we would normally like to do. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about you, Trevor, but for me, sometimes I I will get 
what dreams, sexual dreams, yeah. urges, and all that work that I did in my recovery as a single person is just as important now. Yep. It's not like marriage took away the the burn. Right. Well, um, it's like a muscle, right? Like <clears throat> if you are in if you're in uh, fitness and you're wanting to get like more physically fit, you're wanting to get to that point. It's like it's almost this. Uh, someone I was having this conversation recently about running, right? Storytelling again. Uh, that basically, if 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 you haven't run in a while, and I, I hate running, so this is a great analogy for me. Uh, and I let's say I wanted to start running tomorrow. It's gonna suck for a while. It is not gonna be good. It's like I'm gonna get home huffing and puffing. I'm probably gonna walk most of it because I really don't want to be doing this running thing. But if you stick with it and you're consistent over time. Like not only do your lungs expand, but your body starts to like acclimate itself to this activity and you start to see the fruit of it and the benefit of it. Now, if you stopped running, your body's going to go back to the way it was before that maybe you're continuing to eat the same way. And so you start to gain a little bit more weight. Your lungs start to shrink a little bit, like things are going to change. And the same thing is true in recovery that just because you did all this work, like for me, I'm in year five and I'm living in sexual integrity and freedom, period. Like there's no doubt about it. But if I stop working on recovery, I very easily slip back into those old behaviors, those old ways of thinking, uh, starting to not manage my triggers and my emotions, not communicate, starting to isolate. And those things were all the breeding ground of being sexually unhealthy. And so I think that's one of those things where even as you get married, it's just as important, if not more, to continue working. And think about you, Drew, with like your... With your kid, it's the same thing. Like the work you're doing now is also reaping the benefit for your children. Yeah. Amen. Breaking those generational curses. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about your grandfather um, at the beginning. You know, I found out uh, a few years ago that my grandfather was actually a sex offender. Hmm not just an addict, but an offender. And I had no idea anyone in my family struggled with this at all. Right. Because it was that culture of silence and shame. Mm -hmm. And after this, finding out, well, actually, I don't know a single man in my family who doesn't struggle exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I asked my dad, okay, dad, did you ever struggle with lust or, or sexual things? And he said, Drew, every man struggles with this. I said, yeah. well, what about you? Every man struggles. I was right. like, oh my gosh. Right. And, and he's, still, he's still feeling that fear mm -hmm. of opening up yep. and, and yep. getting vulnerable. Yep. Um, and man, I'm just so grateful that we get to enjoy the beauty mm -hmm. and the, the pleasure, honestly, the pleasure of recovery. Yeah. Um, so... Trevor, what is your favorite thing about freedom from porn? Yeah, dude. Um, I mean, I, like this may seem like it's off the cuff, but like genuinely, I think for me, it's that I don't have any secrets. Um, I don't have to go clean up the browser history. Um, you know, like there are still shows that I watch that are like more violent than my wife wants to watch. Uh, and so like, she'll ask me, what are you watching? And I'll just be like a show, you know, like, which is okay. Like, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not like hiding and isolating and secrecy, but it's like, just, just a show you probably aren't going to want to watch all the blood and the, you know, like a show I really like Vikings on Amazon prime. It's a history channel show. Love the show. Uh, and, uh, 
Yeah, and maybe I shouldn't even be plugging it. But basically, my wife isn't going to want to watch that. But for me, like, I don't have all this, like, here's a big one. I think this is a big one today. Um, you know, you've got all the people who are like, girlfriends or fiancés or wives want to see your phone. And you're like, mm, I don't know about that. Like, I don't want to let you into my phone. Let me like check a couple things really quick. Where now I'm at a point where if my wife needs to see my phone, I just hand it over. Like, I've, I've got one of the older iPhones. So her thumbprint literally gets her into my phone and she knows the passcode. Like, there is a freedom. There is a relaxed nature to not having secrets that is, uh, it's invigorating, genuinely. Like, I don't have to keep stuff from my wife or from the people close to me. Um, so that I would say that's one. A very close second is seeing how vulnerability and honesty unlocks stuff for other people. Um, that as I have gotten into recovery and as I'm able to even just like, you know, my producer in here, Justin is sitting here, he's one of my best friends. I can just straight up say, this is where I'm at today and this is how I'm feeling. And what I've realized over time is that that opens a line of communication to where he can come into my office and say, bro, this is where I'm at. This is how I'm feeling. And we can hash it out. And so you do less tiptoeing around conversations, around tension, around struggles, and it allows other people to step into the same stuff. So no secrets for my wife. And then honesty and vulnerability, having the freedom to do that unlocks so many things for other people. Amen. Thanks so much for being on my show, Trevor. Um, and I was on your show too. So thanks for having me there. You can yeah. go check out that episode on the Pure Desire podcast. Actually, two episodes. That's right. Um, That's yeah. Right. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Honestly, anytime. Would love to. <laughs> Let's do it. Awesome.